So I um, hope that you will um, consider this talk part of the meditation. And what I want to talk about is uh, the path of awakening into wisdom, into heart. When I think about wisdom, I think it's this wonderful fusion of two qualities that, when brought together, are greater than each alone. This quality of insight, awareness, that's fused and intertwined with compassion and loving kindness, and bringing these both together brings the heart of wisdom, this combination of insight and compassion. So I'd like to uh, read a quote from the third Zen patriarch, part of uh, this, um, some of his writings. Because the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. Do not search for truth. Only cease to cherish opinions. The great way is perfect like vast space where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. And I'll add on in my own personal way, except when it doesn't feel like that. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the first Vipassana Santa Cruz matriarch (laughs) Mary Grace (laughs) she said this on the first evening and I wrote it down almost word for word so it might not be an exact quote (laughs) but it says in any experience it will either stay the same or improve or get worse (laughs) we don't get to choose. In any experience, it will be either staying the same or it will improve or it will get worse. We don't get to choose. This is a very powerful teaching. Just who are we? Who are we? We've been sitting here for days and being with ourselves. This is a written by Rod McClaver called Why Do We Exist? Why do we exist? Fifty trillion cells make up the human body. And each of those cells in turn consists of atoms countless millions or billions of them depending on the function of a specific cell. And the atoms? They consist mostly of empty space, protons and neutrons surrounded by electrons. Empty space, just as the universe is mostly empty space. The human body, this entity of mostly empty space, is space held together, space unified, 
even if for only a little while, by a life force. Life force needs a purpose. Without a purpose, there's no reason for the unity. Without a purpose, life deteriorates, tends to dissolve, dissolve back into randomness. Without a purpose, a life is less than the sum of its parts. The atoms existed before the human body, and they'll be there after life is gone. And in the meantime, in this short interval, our lives, the atoms are held together by an indescribable, unknowable force, the empty space. That unknowable force has a purpose, has a path, has a destiny. It may be a destiny denied, but there is a reason for the unity. A life force exists on borrowed energy. A life force is energy captured for a brief while from the surrounding world, and then it goes back into the surrounding soup. For those atoms to come together at random without purpose and then dissipate into emptiness is, I think, a life without meaning, a destiny denied. We think about this body. <coughs> this body is mysterious. Many of you know that I am um, very deeply involved in the practices of the 32 parts of the body meditation, which I will not be talking too much about tonight. But this practice has really influenced me to move into this body. local poet, her name was uh, Wendy Yen, she was here in town practicing the 32 parts of the body and she decided to make up her own list. And I'd like to read it to you. It's that question of who are we? So she writes, it's the 110 functions of the body. Inhaling, exhaling, smelling, coughing, sniffing, sneezing, hungering, thirsting, licking, sucking, tasting, biting, chewing, salivating, spitting, lubricating, swallowing, belching, hiccuping, vomiting, transporting, digesting, selecting, absorbing, storing, burning, building, copying, creating, destroying, cramping, flatulating, defecating, pumping, distributing, filtering, excreting, holding, urinating, listening, seeing, blinking, dilating, crying, speaking, humming, singing, screaming, whispering, smiling, frowning, laughing, upholding, anchoring, prosopcepting, sitting, standing, balancing, walking, running, jumping, dancing, hugging, tensing, relaxing, contracting, stretching, trembling, enclosing, excluding, warming, shivering, cooling, sweating, itching, scratching, shedding, moving, touching, feeling, engorging, climaxing, sleeping, snoring, dreaming, waking, menstruating, conceiving, bearing, birthing, suckling, growing, fatiguing, breaking, aching, ailing, paining, fevering, replenishing, cleansing, hosting, engulfing, killing, collecting, repairing, clotting, 
blocking, swelling, dying, decaying. (laughs) Then she's playing around with the mind, attending, ignoring, concentrating, alarming, irritating, exciting, perceiving, recognizing, relating, remembering, forgetting, understanding, confusing, planning, organizing, explaining, defining, listing, measuring, evaluating, penetrating, deducing, predicting, pretending, inquiring, calculating, reading, learning, teaching, fearing, hating, judging, bragging, praising, disagreeing, distorting, misrepresenting, angering, blaming, resenting, concealing, attacking, justifying, apologizing, reconciliating, revenging, desiring, grooming, adorning, attracting, grasping, stealing, suffering, respecting, disclosing, sympathizing, cooperating, giving, supporting, loving, joking, teasing, grieving, believing, doubting, questioning, meditating, hoping, worshiping, praying, repenting, despairing, rejoicing, honoring, vowing, thanking, imagining, exploring, inventing, and playing. Of course, we could add many more to this list as we sit and become present. (laughs) These lists really help me to get into the body. Tonight I want to just acknowledge about what is really... um, When I try to talk, I, I want to try to give something that's really alive in me and perhaps in us, and I've been very much touched with um, the interviews that I've had, the questions here in the, in the meditation hall, and at times just looking at different people with tears and joy. It's, I know there's lots happening here. There's lots cooking. Lots cooking, and Hafiz, he writes for three days, actually we should say for five days, since we're here for five days. He says, not many teachers in this world can give you as much enlightenment in one year as sitting all alone for three days in your closet. That would do. (laughs) (laughs) That means not leaving. That means not leaving, and better get a friend to to help with a few sandwiches and get yourself a chamber pot. And no reading in there either or writing poems. That would be cheating. Aim high for the 360-degree detox. The sitting alone, though, is not recommended if you are normally sedated or if you've been (laughs) under a doctor's surveillance because of your brain. Dear one, don't let Hafiz fool you. A ruby is buried here. Don't let Hafiz fool you. A ruby is buried here. So we've been sitting and creating this broad margin in our lives. It's so rare that we give ourselves space to be like this. We're being fed we're not having to deal with all of the day-to-day workings of life as far as our jobs and chores. We're doing a little karma yoga and so forth, but pretty much we have it pretty 
good here. Free of a lot of responsibility so that we can be within ourselves. So I have a deep appreciation and I hope that uh, I trust and feel at times everyone here does appreciate these moments where we have a broad margin. I'd like to just um, read a few notes from Henry David Thoreau while he was living at Walden Pond. He put a cabin on some land that Ralph Waldo Emerson had owned and lived there for some time as a hermit. And this is some field notes of just one day while he was at his hermitage. He says, There was a time when I could not sacrifice the bloom of the present moment. Love that. Could not sacrifice the bloom of the present moment to any work, whether of the head or hand. I love a broad margin to my life. Sometimes in a summer morning, having taken my accustomed bath, I sat in my sunny doorway from sunrise till noon, wrapped in a reverie amidst the pines and the hickories and the sumacs. In undisturbed solitude and stillness, while the birds sang around, or until by the sun falling in at my west window, the noise of some traveler's wagon on the distant highway, I was reminded of the lapse of time. I grew in those seasons like corn in the night, and they were far better than any work of the hands would have been. <coughs> they were not time subtracted from my life, but so much over and above my usual allowance. I realized what the Orientals mean by contemplation and the forsaking of works, and for the most part, I minded not how the hours went. The day advanced as if to light some work of mine, and it was morning, and lo, now it is evening, and nothing memorable is accomplished. Instead of singing like the birds, I just silently smiled at my incessant good fortune and as the sparrow had its trill sitting on the hickory before my door, I had my chuckle, or my suppressed warble, which he might hear out of my nest. It was time when I could not sacrifice the bloom of the present moment to any work, whether of the head or hand. I love a broad margin to my life. within this broad margin that we have with ourselves, it also puts us in touch with what's inside us. Now, there's been many themes here of talking about some of, uh, you know, particularly Carla was addressing with us last night about how to work with, to name some of the challenges, the hindrances that are arising. Of course, all of us, I think, when we have this time to pause, get in touch perhaps with even deeper deeper aspects of our own human condition. I was reminded of the five conditions, the five remembrances that the Buddha taught is. The first one is, is that I am of the nature to age. I cannot escape from getting old. I cannot escape from aging. You think about it, from the moment of that wondrous conception where a father's sperm and a mother's egg began the irreversible process of aging. 
Of course, we cannot escape from illness. No doubt we can try to live as healthily as possible, optimize our health for as long as possible, but in the end we cannot escape from illness. We cannot escape from dying. We cannot escape from being separated from those that we care about. And we cannot escape from our karma, that our deeds, that we are the hearers of our own deeds and actions. I remember one time when I was a young boy, I think some of you know I had my first realization of death and that it could come at any moment when I was four years old. And there was a time in my earlier years where I was really seriously kind of upset with my mother and father. Why did they do it? Now I have to deal with it. I'm alive. And there's like, there's like no way out of this. I'm going to die. I really, in some way, inside me, I kind of harbored a, a like, oh, I, I didn't ask for this. I could deal with it. There's no escape out of it. I went through a phase of feeling that, but actually I, I bowed to my mother and father. And actually, some of us here have asked me, what's this bowing stuff? What's this bowing stuff? The head's on the floor, the two arms, the two legs. We call it a five-point prostration. The five points represent our five benefactors. They represent the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. We've taken refuge in them. The teacher, the teaching, those that practice the teaching. The enlightened one, the Dharma, the way, the Sangha, the noble community. And the fourth is honoring our mother and father. Without them, we would not be here. They are our benefactor. And lastly, our teacher, our teachers, those that have had the, um, for whatever reason, miraculously as it was, we were turned on to the teaching, to the Dharma. And so the teachers are our benefactors. Honoring to the mother and father, to the teachers, to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So we're all working with the material, our stuff, and even us teachers. Well, me, I'll just speak for myself. <laughs> Never forget one student of mine said in some realization one day, she said, Bob, I didn't realize you're just as, I'll let you fill in the blank. <laughs> the last word was up. <laughs> you're just as something up as, as everybody else. <laughs> she was actually very relieved. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're all works in progress. <laughs> and the wonderful thing is that with this teaching it's providing us a way to work with what arises the power of acknowledgement the power of naming the power of being able to see what's there to read you a very powerful quote from Hurricane Carter who was a prize fighter and he was falsely accused of murder spent I think almost 20 years in prison until he was found that um, it was a mistake. He got out of jail. 
This is what he writes. He goes, the most memorable bout I ever had in my life was with myself. I had to fight all the bullshit, all of the arrogance, all of those things. When I was in solitary confinement, I was in a state of hatred. I hated everybody. I hated the judge. I hated the criminal who said I was at the scene of the crime. And I had to come to terms with that. And finally, I had to give it up. And that took a long time. But I knew I had to be free. That was my mission, to remain free, to stay above the prison system, which is the lowest level of human <coughs> existence. You just feel that? Mm -hmm. lowest level of human existence and he had to be free spirituality to me is a conscious mind and I've studied religions from Buddhism to Christianity I've studied them all and I've come to find out that spirituality means a conscious mind someone who is awake rather than asleep sleeping people kill one another sleeping people make war on one another sleeping people do all kinds of terrible things to one another I would rather be awake. I'd rather be on the side who are of those who are awake. Hurricane Carter. <clears throat> May we never underestimate the the power of truth, the power of being able to name what is within us. And there's a, a wonderful um, story about this uh, Maori culture in the Polynesian uh, seas. And it's kind of mythological, but there's some real important teaching here. And it turns out that this one, uh, Christine Hubbard, who's an anthropologist, went and visited the, this Maori culture. And she noticed in the village that there wasn't any doctors, any medical facilities. This was a very rural, third world village, but no no one there. And she finally asked some of the elders, um, how, how do you tend for the sick? And the elders said, it's simple. Oh? Because yes, we gather all the villagers and we sit in a circle. And then the one that is ill, we ask them to come in the middle. And then one of us asks the person that's ill, what has been left unsaid? what has been left unsaid and it is said that they stay there for a period of time maybe an hour, maybe two hours maybe an afternoon, maybe a day maybe a few days until eventually all that has been unsaid becomes said and they say the healing rate is 98% now of course this may be more mythological but there's a certain powerful uh, important lesson here about what has been left unsaid and even Jesus in the Gospel of Thomas once said if you say what's within you what you say within you will save you and if you don't say what's within you what you don't say will destroy you very powerful words I find as we're sitting and doing our practice cooking cooking <laughs> the things that perhaps have been unacknowledged, the places where we haven't wanted to feel. Different things may arise. When I used to live in the monastery, another name for the monastery that me and a friend coined is that we were living inside a big old shit accelerator. 
And that's all. It will just, just, just generate, generate the stuff. And, you know, it wasn't big stuff like somebody just, you know, I leave my shoes on one door and someone took off and or someone took my toothbrush or, you know, it's just little things. But, of course, we're all bouncing up against each other. That's the wonderful thing sometimes about sangha. They sometimes say you get a sack of potatoes, you put them in the bag and you shake it around and gradually the hard edges begin to get rounded. <laughs> we learn from each other. At times, relating, bouncing off each other, supporting one another. Sitting together. We create a very sacred and special space for us to begin to do very intense work. And of course, at times we may project it on that the reason that I'm having so much suffering is because Bob's coughing up in the front there, or whatever else, or this is that, and that is this. Like, you know, the mind is just so easy to blame. All projections of our own psyche. Very interesting. Here we are sitting, being with our life. Francis Fennell in the Christian Monk says, when the light of mindfulness, when it increases, as we begin to practice, the light of awareness increases, and we see for ourselves that, huh, where it might be worse than we thought. (laughs) (laughs) We're amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. You can tell it's from the Middle Ages. We've never could have believed that we've harbored such things and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. But while our faults diminish and the light by which we see them waxes brighter, we can even be filled with more horror, but please bear in mind for your comfort. Please bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive the malady when the cure begins. We only perceive the malady when the cure begins. So this sense of maturation that we're willing to finally be able to sit and to be with what's present and beginning to acknowledge what's there is part of our healing process. What I love about the Dharma is this sense of investigation There is faith, you could say, in Buddhist teachings, but faith has a quality that is built upon confidence, that's built upon our direct experience. What I love about the Dharma is, as well as being a wonderful, powerful teaching of self-compassion, and I loved how Carla, with the rain, she would add the with compassion, with compassion, with compassion, that we're infusing our practice with compassion, and as we become more mindful, in many cases, Compassion naturally arises. We realize our own suffering. We realize we don't want to hurt anyone else. And naturally, these sense, and, and gradually, we may, we may even get that we don't want to hurt ourselves. And we want to bring more compassion. Compassion grows out of mindfulness. But I love this quality of mindfulness. One of the, the second factor of the seven factors of enlightenment, the first one is mindfulness. The second one is investigation. And I love the Dharma, I love this sense that this investigation quality. It's so intelligent. It's really inviting us to see for ourselves with our own direct experience what seems to be true or not true. 
I love that sense of using our mind, our awareness, our discernment in practice, and also infusing it with compassion, with loving kindness. The other factors of enlightenment that are preceded after investigation is energy, rapture, calm, concentration, equanimity. But I find this quality of investigation is is a factor that helps us to begin to see more clearly the way things are. In the Buddha's teaching is a wonderful sutta called the Kalama Sutta, which is the charter of free inquiry. In the sutta in Pali, there's these famous two words, Ehi Pasiko, O Paneyiko, Piesadam Vedido Bo Winyuhiti. Ehi Pasiko is seeing for yourself with your own experience what is true. The Buddha echoed, we don't have to believe the teacher because the teacher says so. We don't have to believe the teaching because the teaching says so. We don't have to believe just because we're hearing it by hearsay or by discourse or by books. It's really relying on our own direct experience, using our discriminating investigative awareness. I so much appreciate the Dharma holding this quality of investigation. The Buddha said, what do you think? Does the absence of greed hatred, delusion, appear for our benefit or not. So there's a certain ethical guideline here. When I'm experiencing greed, when I'm experiencing hatred, when I'm experiencing delusion, is it beneficial to me or not? We have to discover this. It's through this investigation that we may begin to discover much more about our suffering. In Kabir... He says, friend, please tell me what I can do about this world. I hold on to it and I keep spinning out. I gave up sewn clothes and I wore a robe. But then I noticed one day that the cloth was well woven. So I bought some burlap. But I still throw it elegantly over my left shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings and now I discover I'm angry a lot. <laughs> I gave up rage. And now I notice I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm proud of myself. (laughs) When the mind wants to break its link with the world, it often still holds on to one thing. Achan Sumedho, wonderful senior Western teacher of Amravati, Chidhurst, Achan Cha's Western first Western disciple. He wrote a very beautiful translation of the Four Noble Truths and definitely recommend anyone that's interested, you can Google it and find it. I guess that wasn't put in a Dharma talk about 20 to 1,000 years ago. You can Google it and find it. (laughs) (laughs) But he elaborates on um, I particularly, I mean, I'm, I'm reading it very slowly. It's the type of thing I want to read. I could almost read like one sentence a day and just stay with it for the whole day. But I've been really into reading about the origination of suffering. And talks about that there's three aspects. Sense, pleasure, that we're kind of always going after getting the good feeling. And of course... It's like a thirst that perhaps can never be quenched because as soon as I get done with my ice cream, I'm wondering if there's any more or what's next. 
It's kind of like, what's next? It's an old story about a genie lived in a bottle and some person found it and rubbed it, cleaning it up, and the genie came out and the genie said, Master, I'm going to grant you anything you want. And so he said, I, and, and then he said very uh, quickly after that, and if you don't, and then you have to pick something else or I'm going to chop your head off. And so the person asked to get this and this genie was a fast genie because it had been stuck in the bottle for you know, eons. And boom, there was a palace. What's next, master, holding the big machete? He says, well, I want a swimming pool. What's next, master? This was going on and on. What's next, master? What's next? Our mind is like that. What's next? What's on the next channel? This is sense So finally, this, this guy figured out what to do. Genie, I want you to go up and down the pole forever. Ah, freedom. <laughs> sense desires. Second aspect is becoming. This one really hits home with me, and I was really astounded. Becoming is this aspect of um, wanting to become someone. And of course, in our you know we're, we are individuating and becoming. I sometimes think it takes about fifty years to finally individuate into who it is that you are. Then all of a sudden you look and it's like, well, yeah. the next fifty years, <laughs> kind of rearranging everything. <laughs> but this sense of becoming can be a profound source of suffering, and I, I find this very clearly in my own life. To, you know, many things, wanting to be seen, wanting to be understood. I mean, there's the endless becomings and how that when we leave ourselves, I'd love to invite all of us here to look closely into the nature of our pain and how much of is it is it this becoming mm-hmm. is infusing our suffering as we leave ourselves. This becoming. And of course, the opposite is, that's very much related, is oh, I don't want to become, I want to just get rid of it. Do the opposite. Just get rid of it. <laughs> All of these are, what's important is that certain times we need do need to get rid of stuff. Certain times we need to go and get stuff, if you will. The aspiration, I want to become again enlightened. But then again, it's the attitude. And there's an attitude within the mind that's hungering and craving, that's not okay with what's here, that is something perhaps we can bring investigation to. What I really like about the Dharma is that it's so down-to-earth. It's so practical. It's based on common sense. In the Abhidharma, which is um, one of the major uh, baskets in the canonical literature, there's three baskets. Many of you are familiar with this. The Abhidharma, which is the um, high teachings of the Dharma, the Buddhist psychology, and the suttas, which are the discourses of the Buddha. And the Vinaya, which is the ethical and virtual uh, expositions of, of the Dharma, the, the monks' um, Rules of uh, discipline, rules of discipline, and much more. There's, actually, the, the Vinaya is very rich with a lot of teachings of the Dharma. 
But in the Abhidharma, they talk about that there's four ultimate realities. And I'm not going to get majorly into this, but very briefly, they talk about that in the four ultimate realities, what is there really? There's mind, there's mental factors, there's materiality, and there's nirvana or nibbana. And mind and mental factors and materiality or form, this is what we live in. This is not too esoteric. We've got a consciousness, we've got mental factors, we have a body. We live in this. And it's said that the crux of all karma, and we use the word karma as kind of a definition of law, the laws of cause and effect. But actually, in Pali, it's separated this karma and vipaka. Karma is action, and vipaka is the fruition of that action. But the source, you could say, or the crux of where karma is generated is through our intentions through our volitions, through our psyche, our mind. So I want to talk about this crux of karma, this kernel of karma. In the Dhammapada, some people like to call it the closest thing to a Buddhist Bible, very beautiful uh, discourse, suttas, there's some Pali phrases. It goes, Mano Pabo, Nasagama Dhammo, Mano Sata Mana Mayo. That means that mind is the forerunner of all states. Mind is chief, mind made are they. In other words, we could say that the mind is the creator of our own heavens and our own hells through our own thoughts. This is from Margaret Wheatley called Consumed by Fire. She writes, I know that we notice what we notice because of who we are. We create ourselves by what we choose to notice. And once this work of self-authorship has begun, we inhabit the world we've created. We self-seal we don't notice anything except those things that confirm what we already think about who we already are. <clears throat> when we succeed in moving outside of our normal processes of self-reference and can look upon ourselves with self-awareness, then we have a chance at changing. We can break the seal. We notice something new. Proceeding our thoughts, our, our intentions, our volitions. If our intentions are skillful, skillfulness will, results will follow. If the intentions and volitions are unskillful, the unskillful results will follow. We are the architects within our own mind. We can say that intention shapes our thoughts and our words and our actions. These are the three doors in the crooks of karma. Volition affecting our thoughts, our words, and our actions. This is why mindfulness plays such an important role. 
and getting down even into the volitionary level that sometimes it's very difficult to see the volition. You know, before you know it, we're speaking and doing what wish we didn't. Or acting and wish we hadn't acted. Viktor Frankl talks about this beautiful space that between the stimulus and the response there is a space and in that space lies freedom. Space between the stimulus and response. Very difficult to see that space unless we become more and more present. So we can say that intention, volition, shapes thoughts, words, and actions. And our thoughts, words, and actions shape our behaviors. And our behaviors sculpt our bodily expressions. And our bodily expressions fashion our character. And of course, as our character hardens, it hardens into what we look like. Orson Welles, I believe, or someone said, yep, you get the face you deserve when you turn 50. (laughs) (laughs) Our intentions shape our thoughts, words, and actions. Our thought, words, and actions shape our behaviors. Our behaviors sculpt our bodily expressions. Our bodily expressions fashion our character. Our character hardens into what we look like. The good news is we can change. And I don't know, I've seen so many elders that have really come wise in the age and their faces are just gorgeously beautiful, like beautiful babies. There's an old Twilight Zone. I used to love the Twilight Zone growing up. I think Rod Serling was a very <laughs> soft <laughs> And... You know, I remember this one Twilight Zone where this guy had this kind of angry mug and he was just kind of thinking all the time, if everyone would just be like me, then the world would be a better place. Everyone would just be like me, then it would be a better place. Well, he went to sleep with that thought. (laughs) And he woke up in the morning. His dog had the same look as him. (laughs) Everywhere he went outside, everyone had... Everyone had his face and his disposition, and then came the famous song, doo 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 doo. <laughs> and that was the end of the show. <laughs> you kind of get what you deserve. <laughs> or not. Mindfulness coupled with investigation, in some ways, helps us to see, if you will, under the hood. Under the hood of our personalities. We begin to recognize our unconscious tendencies, our patterns that drive our behaviors. So this is the good news. Pema Children talks about, you know, most worldling people, they consider all these like anger, jealousy, fear, the whole list is bad news. But for those that are spiritual warriors, those that have a hunger to know what's true, it's not bad news at all. These are places that are showing us very clearly where we're holding back, where we are stuck, and this is the places where we work from. Mindfulness offers us a space to begin to see this parade of thoughts, aversions, fantasies, so forth. Bhante Gunaratana writes, somewhere in this process of meditation, you'll come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. (laughs) Your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels, barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. No problem. (laughs) You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. It's always been this way. Perhaps you've just never noticed. (laughs) 
heart of the Buddha teachings that's found in the Dhammapada is really this one line, it's to abstain from evil and to purify the mind. This is the teachings of all of the Buddhas, to purify the mind. When the Buddha sat underneath the Bodhi tree and became awake, he discovered these four noble truths, suffering, the cause, the path, in its cessation. He realized that perhaps um, the three greatest roots that we work with in our practice, and of course they have their tributaries, is greed, hatred, and ignorance, or loba, dosa, mohar. Greed, hatred, and ignorance. It's said that there's no fire hotter than greed, no ice colder than hatred, no fog so thick as ignorance or delusion. When the Buddha was awakened underneath the Bodhi tree, he uttered his lion's roar of awakening, and it just gives me chills every time I read it and speak it out loud. He says, Through many a birth I've wandered in samsara, seeking but not finding the builder of this house. Sorrowful it is to be born again and again, O householder, Thou art seen. Thou shalt build no house again. All thy rafters are broken. Thy ridgepole is shattered. My mind has attained the unconditioned. Achieved is the end of suffering, of greed, hatred, and ignorance. I've talked about three of the four ultimate realities and the last one is nirvana. What is nirvana? An old teacher of mine, Dr. Rina Sirkar, used to try to describe the impossibility of knowing what Nibbana is and comparing it to a fish and a turtle. That the turtle every day would um, get on land and then go back in the sea and was very good friends with the turtle and the turtle from time to time would say, where'd you go? And I went on land, the turtle would say, and fish would just kind of scratch its gill. (laughs) What do you mean, land? There's no such thing as land. Very difficult for us to understand about nirvana. I think what is very hopeful about the Buddhist teachings is that there's a path that leads to fruition, to greater freedom, to greater peace. What I love about even the whole notion of this possibility, the possibility that exists within all of us that we can gain deeper and deeper freedom. And this freedom is actually based on psychological purification, which is what I really like, because it's very practical. It's not like just like thinking, it's not just like about mystical thinking, but it's about working with our kilesas, our greed, hatred, and ignorance. And quite literally, the arahant, which is the fully enlightened being in Theravadan Buddhism, the literal translation of the arahant is the destroyer of the enemies. 
And what enemies? The enemies of greed, hatred, and ignorance. And where do they exist? In the eyes, in the nose, in the mouth, in the ears, in the, the, the body, the tongue, the mind states, in our five senses and mind states. This purification of mind has to do with psychological elements. And I don't let's say psychological elements in the sense of a Western psychological framework, but I love the notion that, that this is about purification of mind that can be worked with through our own observation, our own investigation. This is extraordinarily... This, this is good news. This is good news. That with our attention and our investigation, we can get peace. We can purify our minds. So we're sitting here, cooking, working with this. I once asked my beloved teacher, Venerable Lindetsera, who died, gosh, getting close to two, three years, the age of 98, and I had mentioned this maybe a year or two ago, the story, but I'd like to tell it again, that as a, I, I was a Buddhist monk for a temporary period of time, I was actually a Buddhist monk a number of temporary times. <laughs> In the Burmese tradition, it's a very benevolent tradition, they will go out of the way if you want to even ordain for one day they will make the effort and time to ordain you, which is a big process. Shaved head, robes, getting in, in, going inside this particular very special designated place. There's some hours involved of initiation into becoming a bhikkhu. No, no small matter. And it takes at least five monks to ordain a monk. Even for one day, they will do that. Gladly. I love the Burmese sense of generosity in their Sangha. Considered just even for one day to be a bhikkhu is, is a good thing and support it. So I had been a monk uh, a few times. And one of the. Um, the monks' vinaya disciplines is very, very strict. And they are actually, and it's so deeply based on humility. The monks are not allowed to say what type of attainments they've received to lay people. And if they say a falsehood about their attainment to anyone, even to a monk, then that is considered one of the most primary of offenses and they can never be a monk again in this life. Even if they wear robes, no one will accept them. They're not a monk in the, in the heart of the Buddha. So we can understand the, you know, it's so deeply based in humility. But one of the rules is, is that a monk can ask another monk about their attainments. So I had about five minutes to go before I was going to disrobe. <laughs> and I had my last question to Seattle. And, you know, I say this with humor, but I, I was really burning with this question. This was really up for me big time. And what was up for me big time, because, you know, working on ourselves is hard work, and 
I think in the maturity of my practice then, I just needed to know that there was enlightenment. <laughs> Is there enlightenment? And now I look back, I'm like, I can't believe I asked him that question. He just, <laughs> he's very patient with me. Very patient indeed. But I think that he could recognize that I was really in a crisis. Kind of like an existential crisis. Because like, I kind of felt in my mind, like if I didn't know that, if there wasn't enlightenment, I don't know whether it's worth all this. That's where, kind of like where I was coming from. I, really, I was really up for me. Oh, it's raining. <laughs> Maybe it's the heat. But anyways, um, and so I asked him, is there enlightenment? And, and I said, don't give me the textbook answer. I know that in the, all the textbook stuff in the Dharma. What's your experience? And he said to me, in such love in his eyes and just profound humility, he said that um, there is nirvana. And my journey has not ended, but I am swimming in the river. (laughs) That really meant a lot to me. But, you know, what means more to me, and, you know, it's like now I feel, like I feel like I don't even need to ask that question because just the taste of awareness in time, the lessening of just recognizing my own understandings of the lessening of suffering has shown that there is a way. I'm barely in a puddle. Instead, <laughs> I was in a river. But... Uh, I know there's water. And I think all of us, when we get that taste of an aha, that moment of clear seeing, that moment of where we, beyond words, we know. I got a note today from someone who was anonymous about that there was um, so many different statues and pictures of the Buddha here. Which one was the real Buddha? (laughs) (laughs) And so the answer is it's in your heart. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.